Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on Sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit Sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit Sojo.net. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Heather McGee about her new book, which you all have to read, called, entitled, The Sum of Us. I love that. The Sum of Us. Heather McGee is the chair of the board of Color of Change, the country's largest online racial justice organization and volunteers for numerous other boards in philanthropy and social justice. As an NBC News political analyst, Heather rarely elevates the concerns of working families on shows like Meet the Press and Real Time with Bill Maher. She has testified in Congress, drafted legislation, and developed strategies for organizations and campaigns that won changes to improve the lives of millions of people. Her new book, The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together. Let me say it again. The Sum of Us, What Racism Costs Everyone and How We Can Prosper Together is available now from One World, an imprint of Random House. Uh, She is all of that, and she is also one of my favorite activists on this planet. So I am so grateful. Thank you for joining us today, Heather. Thank you so much. It's really great to be with you. So Heather, let's start with this. How is your spirit in these days? How is your spirit in times like this? You know, the last time we talked, it was heavy for sure. Um, And, you know, this... This pandemic has just been such a container of grief, of the losses, and also just the loss for so long, for the first almost year under the Trump administration, of of our national compassion from the top and our ability to do the primary job of the government, which is to protect and help its people. And so there was there were just many levels of, of, of mourning. Um, but today we have a new, more efficient vaccine um, with the Johnson & Johnson shot. We've got here in New York City where I live, which was the first epicenter, we're you know on pace and doing very well. The sun is shining. There is a sense that this is going to turn around. The Senate is voting on the bill to have a new wave of pandemic relief. So I'm feeling a cautious optimism today. That's good. <laughs> we'll even call that hope. <laughs> Dare you say. Because uh, hope, hope hope is, a, as you know, I feel like it's a decision, not just a a mood and, and we have to always decide that we're going to. So when we spoke on this podcast together in the summer of 2020, a time of racial reckoning as our country was grappling with the murder of George Floyd, mm. 
that was our last conversation. Nine months later, and with the trial of the police officer who killed George Floyd coming soon, how do you think or do you think that we are still being changed by that moment, that we're still being changed by it? And if so, how? And if not, why? I do believe that the uprising of the summer of 2020, the largest social demonstrations in American history, 90 plus percent of them being in majority white counties, has created a a generation defining shift in white public consciousness about the extent of systemic racism. You saw it measured in opinion polls. Uh, you see it in, you know, all kinds of signifiers from corporate culture to, you know, the kinds of conversations that are happening in schools and the media to, you know, the kinds of conversations that are happening in churches across the country and places of worship. And that is a great thing. Um, and now that that kind of anti-racist majority has flexed its political muscle as it did in Georgia on a march to the polls that went through the pews of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's church of all things and sent his successor to be the first black man from the South in the Senate since the reconstruction era. I mean, these are truly historic times. So I am feeling like we have the wind at our backs there is obviously, you know, a fire ahead, right? There is a burning white supremacist, uh, conspiracy theorist, anti-democratic fascist movement that obviously made itself known on on January 6th with the attempted, you know, lynch mob at the Capitol. But, you know, they are the the, the a reaction to and the dying gasps of... Um, a force in our politics that's always been there since the founding of our country. And that is not going to remain in our future. So you're talking about how our narrative is changing and you often have spoken to that, how our narrative has to change before policy does now, but you're also, you've been consistently an advocate for changing policy. So how do we move from narrative change, which you're discussing all over the place now to policy change? The relationship between policy change and narrative change is such an important dialectic because the way in which, as I write in my book, The Sum of Us, you know, if our policies and laws change, but our beliefs as a democratic polity don't, and particularly, frankly, the beliefs of the majority of white voters don't evolve to keep up with the policy changes in the direction of racial equity you will find you know political backlash you will find ways to evade the laws like we have with school desegregation um, you will find that you know if you don't really get to the root of the the narrative which is just another way of talking about the belief in the story um, then then you will find that progress is not as durable as you want it to be so that's why i think there's a dialectic i think given the opportunities in Congress and in Washington, the policy menu of things that need to be done are quite clear. Um, But the reason why, for example, I personally didn't go inside um, into the Biden administration or or any of that is because I do feel like there's, there's still hearts and minds work to be done 
Um, and that's why my book, The Sum of Us, really is is focused on a multiracial audience and trying to, to create a, a common narrative for why tackling racial inequality and racism in our politics and our policymaking is in everyone's best interest, except obviously for the folks who are benefiting wildly from the corrupt and racist economic and political status quo. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, let's go, let's go to your book. Cause I think your book could be crucial in, in changing narrative that would then change policy. So in the introduction to the, some of us, you say the antiquated belief that some groups of people are better than others distorts our politics, drains our economy, and erodes everything Americans have in common, from our schools to our air to our infrastructure. Uh, Now, in the faith community, as you know, we say that racism is wrong. It's an assault against the image of God, and many of us say it's literally antichrist. Now, you would agree with all of that, but you're saying that racism is bad for all of us. Can you say more about how systemic racism hurts us all and not just people of color? What's at the heart of the promotion of racist ideas is a zero-sum worldview, the idea that progress for people of color has to come at white folks' expense. And so what that means is that if you follow that zero-sum worldview, you end up cheering the destruction of benefits and goods and investments and policies that would potentially help you in your own community simply because it might also help the people that you've seen as being on the other side. And that vulnerability uh, has been absolutely exploited by the ruling elite to convince white voters to choose the politics of their perceived racial interest over their class interest. And I came to this issue not from a position of directly wanting to address racial justice, but rather wanting to solve the vexing problems around our economy and our society's dysfunction, the way that we hit upon the formula for creating broadly shared prosperity and the greatest middle class the world had ever seen in the New Deal era in the 1950s. And then the majority of white voters turned their backs on that formula and rejected it politically and economically and ideologically because of racism. And that's the story that I tell in The Sum of Us, the story that, that it's the, the crystallizing story of it for me, which is both a real story and a metaphor for what's happened to our politics, is the drained public pool. It's a great me- metaphor. It's really so pow- powerful how in this chapter you use the example of public swimming pools being drained after integration to show how this, this zero-sum paradigm has been a loss for all, all Americans, uh, say more about that. How this history of public pools, and and how, how you say the spirit that drained those public goods lives on. The country went on a building boom of public amenities in the 30s and 40s, as part of the New Deal era and the wartime building boom. It was just a sort of period of time in which there was a bipartisan agreement that investing in building the country and investing in the economic security of its people um, with high minimum wages and high levels of 
collective bargaining supported by labor laws and labor law enforcement uh, with, you know, pretty generous public investments in subsidizing home ownership and retirement, uh, the creation of free public colleges, at least one in every state. It was a time of, of when the, when the living was high, right? Um, and it was a time when, when we had nearly 2,000 public pools and they were paid for by tax dollars. But like the rest of those public benefits that I just mentioned, uh, they were uh, to a large degree segregated for whites only. The idea, the taboo of, of black and white swimming together in levels of undress was just uh, too far. Um, for, you know, white governments and, and elites in towns across the country, not just in the Jim Crow South. And in the 1950s and 60s, when black communities began to succeed in arguing that their tax dollars were funding these pools and therefore they should be able to swim too, many towns across the country decided to drain their public pools. Now, Jim, they, they drained out the water, they poured in truckloads of dirt, they seeded it over, they concreted it up. And, and of course, that meant that white families lost something too. It meant that black families never got to experience that kind of government largesse. Um, but I say that it's a metaphor because we also saw that during that time, there was a massive shift in white support for the idea that the public has a role in investing in the public good and in sort of guaranteeing a high quality of life. Basically, put briefly, the white opinion was public goods are good, but only for the public that they perceive to be good. And, you know, the millions of Black Americans and Brown Americans and Indigenous Americans they'd been taught to disdain and distrust did not count. And therefore, these vessels that would bring them in close proximity, both physically and kind of status-wise, so not just the pool, but the very idea of collective action through the government, through labor unions, began to fall out of favor with the majority of white voters. We know that Lyndon Johnson, after signing the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, was the last white, well, excuse me, was the last Democrat to, let me do that again. We know that Lyndon Johnson, after signing the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, was the last Democrat to win the majority of the white vote to this day. And the rightward tilt of white public opinion away from the kind of guarantees that frankly had made the white middle class has been sort of the defining feature of our economic era, the era that I call in the sum of us, the inequality era. The draining of the pools is such a powerful metaphor. You, you kind of uh, saw this, you kind of fell into this and it became such a powerful metaphor your whole book when you saw this happening where was it that you first ran into to this and it became such a a sign of the whole uh infrastructure of the, of the society uh being drained <laughs> yeah there's so many examples um you know the issue that that is very near and dear to my heart that i worked on for nearly a decade at demos the think tank that i used to run um is the issue of public college education, the idea that we sort of changed our economic laws to make 
a college degree an essential ticket to the middle class, right? It didn't used to be. You used to have minimum wage laws and high union density, so you didn't have to have a degree in order to have middle class security. But in the 1970s, we began to shift that way of thinking and designing our policy. And yet at the same time, somewhat inexplicably, right? And this is this is what drives me through the book. It was, why did we do this, right? It doesn't make any sense to say, now we're going to make this the ticket to the middle class. And yet at the same time, we're going to move from it being free because the government picked up the tab for state public colleges and state schools and community colleges both through state funding of the actual schools and then anything that was left over in a 50 or $100 tuition was picked up by federal grants, not loans. We move from that paradigm to a debt for diploma system that is now resulting in an average of five-figure student loan debt upon graduation, if you're lucky to graduate and make it through with those financial pressures, and a, tri- and a trillion and a half dollars in student loan debt that's holding back an entire generation from their, you know, economic freedom and investing in their own futures because they're paying the government back for something that, you know, was just a decision that we made as, as, as that leaders made. And so it doesn't make sense, right? It really doesn't make any sense. It's just bad economic policy decision-making. And yet when you layer in the story of the drained public pool of the way in which the general idea of government funding public goods for our people became less popular with white Americans, did not shift with black and brown Americans, but less popular with white Americans once integration brought people of color into the public, into the idea of the public, then it makes more sense. So then you understand. And of course, you know, most white parents don't think I'd rather you know, go into debt and have my kid go into debt to go to college, but they also don't make the connection between saying they're socially liberal but fiscally conservative, for example, or make the connection between voting for Republicans who continue to pay more to incarcerate than to educate or pay more to um, give tax handouts to the wealthy and corporations than they do to fund basic education and public college. So that is the way in which racism in our politics and our policymaking has a cost for everyone. It makes white voters less progressive on economic issues. And even when they may support something that would be in the good public interest on the economy, they still vote for a party that markets to them culturally and racially that has no interest in any of those policies that they might support. When you first told me about the pools, I thought it was such a powerful example, such a su- such a way that illustrates all of this. And and how did you first make that connection where the pool became the the sign of the draining of resources from everyone just because of the what what I would call the 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 theological heresy or the practical stupidity of racism? Well, you know, Jim, I don't know that I remember the moment when it flashed. Um, I grew up knowing about the pool phenomenon. You know, it was sort of folk wisdom in my family, I guess, or in my, my, my community. The idea, you know, that the white folks stopped 
wanting the public parks and the public pools and the public schools once, you know, integration happened. Um, I spent a long time, probably the first half of my career, very engaged as as any progressive is with the kind of mystery of of anti-government sentiment and how much it was a a cudgel that was used to to stop us from, you know, investing in our future, from taking care of people struggling in poverty. Um, And if you try to think about that story without having race as a character, it really doesn't add up. Why, why are we so singularly stingy to ourselves? Why do we both have a low minimum wage and slash welfare, right? It's either one or the other, right? People either have to be paid for work or they have to, um, you know, the money has to come from somewhere. Why do we not have universal health care or child care or paid family leave? Why is our, does our infrastructure get a D plus from the American Society of Civil Engineers? We, we you know, what, someone joked to me the other day, if Fox News had been around, um, you know, 50 years ago, we wouldn't have put a man on the moon or built the highway system. You know, I mean, there's just this sense of, of stinginess and miserliness that, that nothing about our people is worth investing in unless they're already rich. And that, that belief, right, in a hierarchy of human value is so racialized, as you always point out, as you pointed out so beautifully in your book. Well, your phrase here, let's the phrase you just said, parks schools and pools. (laughs) Now, park schools and pools are clearly uh, at the core of the common good. It's also at the core of how people build relationships with each other in parks, in schools, in pools. How many stories do people tell about, you know, their summer camp and pool and pool parties and all that? So this also takes away from our being able to build relationships and have proximity to each other, which always changes the narrative, changes our views and values and understandings of each other. So it's deeply connected to policy, but also to just the spirituality of relationship. Exactly. A hundred percent. That's where, and, and when, when the country went on that boom of public amenities there, that was absolutely a social project. The idea was we had had this massive immigration boom and we needed to Americanize folks. We needed to knit together a sense of common purpose and common culture. Um, And the question is, can we do that again in the modern era? Because I absolutely think that the fibers that bind us as a people need to be strengthened and we need to design our policy with that in mind. But can we do it in a way that is not an assimilationist project into whiteness, right? That is the challenge and the question. The big challenge. That's the big question. So you say in the introduction, the coronavirus pandemic is a tragic example of governments and corporations failing to protect black, brown, and indigenous lives. Though if they had, everyone would have been safer. Reminds me of Freddie Haynes, uh, who was on this podcast, uh, during the pandemic, said this in a previous episode of Soul Nation. He said, infection anywhere is a threat to infection everywhere. So as the pandemic continues, how can we all advocate for the government to assist these communities that have been hardest hit in building on the theme of your book, racially equitable 
vaccine distribution will keep us all safer. Yeah, it's so important. And that it's been a fight, right? It really has been. People who have a knee-jerk, zero-sum framework, right? The, the kinds of folks who hear Black Lives Matter and think, well, what about white lives, right? The idea that if we're asserting something good for some part of our people, that must mean something bad for me, right? That filter is the way that many people, and this is more prevalent among white Americans than it is among Americans of color. We don't think that our progress has to come at white folks' expense. Um, is unfortunately how many communities have seen this surge in, in, in conversation about equity. Um, even though black and brown and indigenous people have been hardest hit, and it is so clear the racial disparities to the block, right, to the job sector, we have still seen resistance to targeting the vaccines for the people who are most exposed, who can't afford to, or their bosses won't let them work from home, um, who still have to take public transit, who who have to work and can't just sort of take these couple of months to pursue, you know, sourdough baking. I mean, this is really the question. Can we recognize that in a society that has been so unequal by design, that one size is not going to fit all, and that we can't use universal means to achieve the universal ends that we want, and that our fates are linked, and that if we continue to expose any part of our public to the ravages of racism and, and legislative poverty um, and discrimination, that ultimately it will come back to us. Throughout the journey that I took the right to write the sum of us, you know, I, I looked at issues like healthcare, like the environment, like education, like our democracy and our systems of elections. And, and in each and every instance, I found that of course, communities of color were, were hit first and worse, right? The, the, the target hits its aim. Mm-hmm. No, that's not what I meant to say. <laughs> the target hits its aim? That's not right. <laughs> the aim hits its um, You know, thank you. <laughs> the aim hits its... In every instance, the aim hits its target. But it is not true that everyone on the board is spared. And, and that's really, I think, the way we have to make the case for these targeted interventions to help people and to protect people to get people out of harm's way. Um, and I was pleased to see Joe Biden in his first presidential address on race when he was signing a number of executive orders on racial equity. He explicitly said, we've been using this zero-sum model. And he, you know, he did his Joe Bidenisms and he explained you know, the way it works. And, and it was very colloquial and it was very effective. And then he said racism is, is costly to all of us. He's been naming systemic racism time and time again, which has been one of the most encouraging things to me so far, naming it and saying we're going to deal with it, not just in general attitudes, but in the systemic nature of this. There's a section of your book where you grapple with the mixed past, to be kind, of the church. There's a section of your book where you grapple with the very mixed past of the church in the U.S. as it relates to racism. You quote from a conversation we, we had back when you were writing the book, where I said something like, to confront racism and change this is necessary for white people's 
salvation. To confront racism is not just a question of charity or virtue for white Christians. This is to save our souls. So how can we bridge from the zero-sum paradigm to one that white folks, especially white Christians, recognize the spiritual detriment that racism is to all of us. And how did your research on the book teach you about, let's call it the spirituality of racism and not just the economics of it? This is somewhere I had to go, Jim. And, and really, I do credit you with being one of the people to you know encourage me down this path. I, I, I was going to write a book about the economy, you know, and, and yet in all of my conversations, they would sort of settle into this quiet place, right? This, this more personal place. Um, where people would just admit that there was something on a moral level that was ailing us as a society and as individuals, that that was a cost of racism that went beyond the pocketbook, that, that reached deep down into the soul. And so the chapter that I have on the moral cost of racism to us all is really, um, you know, it's one of my favorite chapters. It's, it's the chapter where we have that conversation I also visited a church in Chicago, um, an evangelical church that is uh, run by um, Pastor Daniel Hill, who's really trying to create an explicitly multiracial, anti-racist evangelical church. And, and it was wonderful for me to just, it was wonderful for me to just sit and be in that community and see what it would be like, what the challenges are, what the opportunities are. I was there and I sat in the back because I was, um, you know, just kind of a little nervous, you know, this isn't my church, you know, just sort of walking in, didn't want to get called on or anything. <laughs> and um, and the back, which I did not realize, was the family section, of course. And so there were all these children there and all these families. And it was, Jim, the largest group of interracial, multiracial families I'd ever seen in, in any one place. And and it was because I asked him about it afterwards. And it was because, you know, as, as we say, right, the, the Sunday morning is such a segregated place. And for families who are um, multiracial and interracial, it's, it's, you know, what are you going to do? Go to two different neighborhoods and two different churches? There's so few places where everyone can feel comfortable. And I thought that was really beautiful. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the, the, the core I, in the book I, I interview um, a number of faith leaders, including you, um, but uh, some rabbis, a Jewish woman of color, um, an oral historian who's um, a Muslim man who talks about, you know, the interesting tradition between sort of Black Americans and Islam. And, you know, I think we have to take seriously the ways in which organized religion, just as any institution in our white supremacist society, has both reflected and been a driver of this this evil ideology. This is where I think uh, the power of your book really comes through and is going to grow as more people get a chance to read it. You describe in The Some of Us your journey of discovering racism as a root issue, root issue to many other problems, the financial crisis, our education system, collapsing public infrastructure. Uh, but why do you think that racism really is at the center of the moral crisis facing our country. I would say, Heather, you seem to be speaking to what it would mean to 
repair, if you will, the moral infrastructure. Let's use that term, moral infrastructure of America, which could be the deepest meaning of the term reparations. I mean, you're really going to, starting with economics, the economy, uh, draining pools, how in 2016, 2016, many white voters we're not operating in their own economic self-interest again in 2020, but but then it really goes deeper to how you're really challenging not just the economic infrastructure, but the root cause of the moral infrastructure of this nation, which needs to be repaired, which could then repair so much of the rest of our systems and structures. That's exactly right. I mean, I I'm. I include the the chapter called The Hidden Wound in my book because ultimately an economy is just a reflection of a society or ruling elites of our societies, but also with the ascent of of many of the the governed um, instincts and beliefs about what's fair and what's good, who deserves, who doesn't deserve, what is just. And so because our moral compass has been so distorted by racism and white supremacy, then it, it's clear that, of course, then our economy would be adrift. Um, you know, when we feel that it is okay to legally have someone work for 40 hours a week and still be in poverty, what are we saying? Um, so... I think that the solution, one solution that I that I lift up at the end of the book, um, the efforts to to create on a community basis, something we've never done as a national basis in this country, which is the truth, racial healing, and transformation efforts. The idea that we need to get our communities together, get on the same page around the truth of how race has has so shaped and racism has really held the pen as we've written our laws and policies in our society. Um, and then envision a world where we really do jettison this belief in a hierarchy of human value and then connect it with the narrative pieces you began with, Jim. What are the, what are the stories that we tell that prop up this belief in a human hierarchy and how can we rewrite them and how can that help to undergird, as you said, a new moral infrastructure and of course, the policies must flow from that. Um, but I think we have to do both in tandem. Brian Stevenson talks about the, the, the lie of the human hierarchy, and, and which is at the core of all of this for us. And I remember a conversation on a book tour I was on, and you were part of the public forum there, in which you said, I remember you said, uh, like Jim, I have been very resistant to this notion of America as uh, an exceptional nation <laughs> because of the way that's been used, that rhetoric for so long against particularly people of color. But if indeed, if indeed we we follow the path that you're outlining here in this book, where we're, we're directly attacking that, that what I would call uh, sinful, human hierarchy that Brian talks about so powerfully. And then really looking at the moral infrastructure of the country, leading to a place where you're sitting in the back of a church with the most multiracial collection of families that you've ever seen, that would be 
a way, perhaps, perhaps, as you were saying in that conversation, I remember in New York, to recover uh, the exceptionalism of what this nation could finally ultimately be. But that would require us taking seriously the core of uh, the some of us, that we are not finally dictated by, uh, by zero-sum games here, but by what we, in fact, you know, to say that we are finally better mm. together than we are when yeah. we're separate. And that none of us is disposable. Um, you know, for me, I, I end the book really looking to this core question of who are we as a people and and what defines being American. And if it's not white supremacy, right, as it has been for so much of our history, um, if we're not defining American citizenship and belonging in these racially exclusive terms, as we have so deliberately and explicitly throughout so much of our history, and as the Trump administration did again over the last four years, um, then, then what are we? And I think in this quote unquote new world, we are supposed to be a place that is so young. I mean, this is something that I, I've really been thinking about lately, Jim, you know, School children in China learn dynasties thousands of years back, right? I mean, you know, people in the Middle East learn about, you know, conflicts and fables from, you know, thousands of years. We are so young. We have so little history that we need to actually master. Um, it's like two human lifetimes. And yet we've been so relentlessly ahistorical. Um so it's so important for us to learn our history so that we see the signs of the people trying to manipulate us with the same forces and the same tactics today. But it's also true that we are so young and therefore can really shape something new. And, and that's where my hope comes from. Well, my hope comes from that too. And having dinner conversations with my boys who are both, you know, together uh, here during COVID and dinner conversations night after night are about how to, uh, uh, to use uh, this language of how do we, uh, as Addie Glaude says, how do we really re, uh, refound, uh, how do we reset all these systems that you're going through here, education and public health and everything. And so when I hear young people sitting around at dinner, earnestly having conversations about how do we refound, uh, or a third founding, as some say, this nation? Uh, that's where the hope comes, and the joy comes, and the freedom comes. That it's not win lose. It's not a zero sum game. It's not win lose. That there's a real power in freedom here. Only if we, as you put it so well in this book, see racism as the root issue to many of our other problems, that we can in fact repair this. But only if we see. Uh, this root issue, and that's what it means to be radical. That's what the word radical means, to go to the roots. And this is a powerful, radical book. And as you have uh, uh, shared that with us today, this is the way forward that all of us can find real freedom and hope. And I think joy, real joy that comes from a new generation finding each other uh, in the pool. <laughs> finding each other in the pool and building those lifelong relationships 
that are going to make this country really a young country. You're right. But make it really the best it's ever, ever been. So thank you, Heather, for this book. And thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jim. To hear more from Heather McGee, follow her on Twitter at H-M-C-G-H-E-E, H. McGee, and read her new book, The Sum of Us. Read this book for more Soul of a Nation updates. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter if you'd like, at Jim Wallace. And thank you for listening to this conversation and for Heather's Uh, I would say, a spiritual vision that can transform economies and public policies. We give thanks for her and for this book, and thanks for all of you for listening uh, to the soul of a nation. Thank you, and God bless you.